Good afternoon. Welcome to Tabernacle of Praise Church International. Uh, we've come together today uh, to do a forum through our Christian Education Department. Uh, and we have with me to my right, Elder Warren Hoskins, who's Director of Christian Education. To my left, Minister Jonathan McFadden. To my far right, Minister Trevor Stevens. And to my far left, Minister Trachelia Simon. All of us, and along with others, uh, participate uh, in our Christian Education Department. Of course, I am Alfred Jackson, pastor of the church. Several months ago, we started a study in the book, Urban Apologetic, Apologetics, excuse me, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. In this book, as we started dealing with uh, restoring black dignity and all of the issues that, that African Americans have faced here in the United States, one of the things that, that came out immediately dealt with the whitewashing of Christianity, basically painting Christianity white across the board and everything coming out of Europe. Well, in studying, we began to realize uh, that everything didn't start in Europe. Uh, from Jerusalem to North Africa, from the east and then to the west, and that much of the contributions made by theologians came out of North Africa. A lot of the church fathers lived in different countries in North Africa. This is something that is mentioned in church history, but not really emphasized. And, you know, if you go to seminary, you may not necessarily understand that a lot of these people came out of North Africa. It's important for us to know and to understand the contributions of Africans to the theology of the church. So this forum today is going to talk about five of those theologians. We're going to talk about each one of us has a different theologian that we're going to talk about just to present some information, talk about who they are, what they did, and their contributions, and we may get into how that relates to us today. We hope this is going to be quite interesting. I will say from a personal perspective, it was very interesting for me to do the research that I did on the person that I'm talking about. So I hope that you will be interested as well and that you will benefit from this forum today. We're going to open with prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come today. We welcome your presence in our midst as theologians today, as we work as uh, apologists in the faith and, and strengthening and defending the faith and reaching those who don't know you or, or even those who have pulled away from the faith because of the errors that have been made uh, by others in the past. Help us, Lord, to, to, to add something valuable today uh, through this discussion that will strengthen your body, that will help people understand the contributions that people of color, in particular Africans, have made to the development of theology and the development of the church. We present this time to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and we thank you. Amen. All right, we're going to go ahead and, and begin, and we'll start with uh, Minister Simon. Okay, well, good afternoon or morning if you're watching during morning time. So I'm going to be talking about Clement of Alexandria. Um, <clears throat> he was a intellect and scholar who lived during the second century. And um, what's really interesting about Clement was that um, he was well-studied and well-learned, very educated. So he knew a lot about um, Greek literature, Greek philosophy, Greek mythology, uh, Greco-Roman literature. And so when he became a believer, he didn't feel that he needed to divorce 
his prior knowledge from who he was as a believer. Mm -hmm. And that was something that posed a lot of difficulties um, because he was an apologist, um, was a theologian, and there were some people who were really um, afraid of being an intellectual and a Christian. So there were a lot of anti-intellectuals that were really against a lot of his teachings. And so he wanted people to be educated and to understand um, who Jesus was in light of what they already knew, right? And so that was something that was difficult, but we'll get into that. So um, Clement was born to pagan parents. He wasn't born to parents who were believers. Um, he was a Greek intellectual who converted to Christianity um, because of his teacher at the Christian catechetical school um, at, at Alexandria. So his name was Pantanus. Um, and so he succeeded um, Pantanus as head of the school in the year 180. And so um, I want to talk a little bit about Clement's theological views. Um, first of all, during the first few centuries of Christianity, there wasn't really a central authority. And Bishop spoke to this a little bit um, in his message this morning. Until the time of Constantine, there wasn't really a central authority. And there were a lot of different views that were being taught when it came to Christianity. And so Greek philosophy, excuse me, was a large part of education at the time. And so these church fathers that we're going to be talking about today, um, they were well educated about these different um, schools of philosophy. And Clement believed that philosophy was for the Greeks what the law of Moses was for the Jews. He felt like it was a, a preparatory discipline that led to the truth. And so this is something... Um, a quote that I jotted down that Pope Benedict XVI said. He said that Clement was one of the pioneers of the dialogue between faith and reason in the Christian tradition. And so I'll be honest with you, when I took philosophy in college, <laughs> it was not my thing. <laughs> it went over my head. And so as I was reading and learning about Clement, I told Jonathan, I was like, <laughs> Some of this is whoo, going a little bit over my head, but it was still really fascinating at the same time. Um, because like I said before, he wanted people to understand that you didn't have to divorce your intellect and what you already knew, that those things could help you really grow stronger in the Lord and really understand more about your faith. Um, and so, like I mentioned before, during his time of influence in the Christian community, there were what they referred to or called um, orthodox believers, which at that time, they orthodox believers were the opposite of heretical believers. So these were people who, um, when you think of the word orthodox, that means that that is the truth. These are people who believe the truth. And so um, these Christians were more legalistic, and they were really suspicious and fearful of intellectualized Christianity, um, especially because of the persecution that was happening to Christians in the empire at that particular time. And so there were people who were already accusing Christians of being simple-minded um, and being anti-intellectual. And so this was something that Clement was like, no, that doesn't have to be the case, that you can be an intellectual and you can be a believer. Um, and so the way Clement looked at it, he felt like these orthodox believers, they demanded bare faith alone. And that was it, just bare faith. And so... Clement was really skilled at really confronting and speaking out against heresy, but also really um, defending the importance of intellect and philosophy to Christians. So his, his goal and his writings and his teachings and his theological approach, approach excuse me, was to make Christians believe, um, cr Christian beliefs intelligible 
to the people who were trained within the context of Greek curriculum um, so that those who accepted the Christian faith might be able to effectively witness within the Hellenistic world. So he wanted people to be able to effectively witness the people who were not believers. And he felt like they needed to be educated and they needed to understand Greek philosophy. Um, and so there were a lot of people, Christians, Orthodox Christians, who rejected this way of witnessing and teaching. And they, because they, they found it very much akin to Gnosticism. Um, and Gnostics were heretics to them. And so they felt like that he was, he was dipping too much in, in the other side. And they, they really didn't like that. And so Clement, he complained about the philosophers of his time, just like he complained about Christians when it came to, um, you know, Christians being anti-intellectual. And so what he wanted to do was mediate. He wanted to be a mediator between the Gnostic and the Orthodox Christians. Some people criticized him because he felt like neither one was wrong, but Christians were better, right? Their, their way was better. And so he wanted to kind of reinterpret the meaning of the word Gnostic. And so if you're not familiar with the word Gnostic or Gnosticism, it's similar to um, modern day school of thought about existentialism. There's a sim similarity there. Um, and so again, he really, in his teaching, he wanted people to know what it meant to be a good Christian. Um, and being a good Christian was about being able to really merge Greek and Christian thought, being able to merge Greek and Christian thought, because he was somebody who had admired Plato. If you've heard of, of Plato or, or Platonism, he was somebody who used him extensively and borrowed a lot from him in his work. And so um, he had about three popular works that were um, that generated a lot of commentary through the centuries. I won't go through all of those different works. And um, like I mentioned before, he, it, he faced a lot of criticism, but um, he acknowledged that there were two natures in Christ, that Christ is the man God who profits us both as God and as man. Um, and he also, um, when he talked about Christ, some of his beliefs about who Jesus was um, were in error when it came to believing that Jesus was human, but him being a human being was just a phantom, that Jesus didn't need sustenance like we need, that he didn't need food and he didn't need water and things of that nature. Um, and so, you know, there was, some, there was some faulty exegesis when it came to Clement's teachings. But all in all, he wanted people to know God and wanted people to know that you can stick closely to scripture and also, um, you know, understand that in light of what you already knew in terms of the Greek philosophy and the Greco-Roman literature and the things that they already knew. And so in the Latin church, he was revered as a saint, um, but his name was removed from the list of saints because as they began to read his works and do research, they just thought that he veered too much on the other side. Yeah, so and I'll stop right there. Context's sake, uh, I think we need to clarify a couple of things that, that all of us will mention. Clement was from Alexandria, yeah. which is in... Alexandria is in Egypt, which is North Africa. When we talk about North Africa during this time of the Greece, Greco Empire, mm -hmm. the Roman Empire, or the Greco Roman Empire, you, you, it doesn't, even though she talked about being, him being Greek, I may talk about Rome, 
But we're still dealing with North Africa. Right. We're still dealing with people who are from the African continent, right. even though these during that period of time there was a lot of wars and empires rose and empires fell. So for context sake, I think that's important because you'll hear Greek or you hear Roman, but we're talking about Africans. Yeah, so that's, that's I think, for context, that might be good for people to know. I, and if I can also build a little bit off of what Minister Simon was sharing, I think, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating when you start delving into the stories of these African church fathers is that it may feel unfamiliar for us in our context because we've never known a time without the church. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about these African church fathers, we're talking about a time in which the church was still fairly young. Yes. And so when you hear all these, you may hear things like this person was accused of faulty teaching and that person was accused of heresy. There was a lot of debate and discourse mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. regarding the theological foundations that for us are old hat, right? Like these are things mm-hmm. that we know of and we understand concepts like the Trinity. You can't probably imagine Christianity without having a concept of the Trinity. But in this time, that was something that was being debated. That was something that was being argued over. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that when I delve into origin. But I just wanted to also add a little bit of that. Like the, things were kind of forming in real time. And so yes. I think that's just so interesting because, again, we don't know what that's like. That's it was right. so early. And I think sometimes we maybe approach uh, scripture or the origins of the early church from this idea that, okay, once the early believers came together, everything was figured out. <laughs> Hardly anything. <laughs> yes. There was a lot that was, was not figured out. The early believers should be commended for continuing in the way, despite not having a lot to go off of, except faith um, in Christ Jesus. And the, I, the eyewitness accounts of witnesses that were passed That's from right. generation to generation. So I just wanted to add that as well. Along with that, we today, we deal with Protestant and Catholic. We're dealing with a time way before Protestantism, way before Martin Luther, all right? Again, in that time of figuring things out. So this is foundational stuff that we need to know because what happens in this time brings us to this point eventually of the challenge and the separation. But there was a separation. You mentioned the Latin church. So there was a separation even before the Reformation between the Roman church and the Eastern Church. And I looked at the map, and the Eastern Church kind of like goes down where Russia used to be, and part of uh, Ukraine would be in the Eastern Church, and it comes down. So just for context sake, uh, this is just fascinating information. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, it's on you. Okay, excellent. So I'm going to pick up right where Minister Simon leaves off, um, because Clement was a really influential predecessor of our next African church father, who is Origen, and that's O-R-I-G-E-N. So those of you who are listening may be familiar, or you may have at least at one time heard of this concept of the hypostatic union. And this Mm -hmm. is a theological term that really defines the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, to set some context, in the Bible, in the written text, you will not find the word Trinity but you will find the concept of Trinity all throughout. So, for example, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, you have the fullness of the Godhead present right there at the same time. The creation story, you have the Spirit of God hovering above the water. So there are definitely concepts, like the idea of the Trinity is apparent in Scripture, but 
if there is no one who is able to kind of extrapolate that and kind of make that real for the audience, it could easily just go undiscovered. And so Origen is really the person we have to credit for extrapolating the concept of the Trinity and really helping to define and explain the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So Origen, um, he's very influential um, and very, really an important figurehead in forming the foundations of Christian theology. He actually formed the foundation for systematic theology, which is systematically using logic and reason to understand our faith. So similar to Clement, Origen did not believe that faith in Christ required us divorcing ourselves of intellect and reason. Um, please remember that these early African church fathers are contemporaries of mm -hmm. uh, philosophers who, Greek philosophers who are um, maybe, you know, followers of Plato or believers in Socrates and Aristotle. And so you have the Platonic method and you have Aristotelian, I'm not saying that correctly, but you know, like <laughs> those kinds of schools of thought. Um, and so reason and logic and philosophy were kind of like the cultural more of the day. People spent their time talking about these things and it was really interesting and intriguing. And that's where we find origin. And so not only did he help develop some of the foundation and groundwork for Christian theology as we know it today, but he is also to be commended for writing a number of commentaries. He was a very prolific writer, which resonated with me personally. I loved it. Um, he wrote a lot. Um, commentaries on Genesis, commentaries about the resurrection, commentaries on Matthew, commentaries on the Song of Songs. The, the man liked his commentaries, and so he would... He basically did commentaries, holistic commentaries of the whole Bible. In his lifetime, he was also a really well-known, reputed teacher. But before all of that, before he became this preeminent theologian, Origen was the oldest of seven children, born into a, some sources say, devout Christian family in Alexandria, Egypt, so on the North African continent. Um, in 202 AD, his father, Leonidas, was killed as a martyr. And so Teenage Origen apparently was so impassioned um, by his own father's death that instead of doing what many of us are probably more familiar with, grieving, um, you know, maybe having a, a service of some sort, Origen was like, I'm going to follow daddy. So he planned to get himself martyred, and he actively sought a way to die for his faith. Well, his mom was like, nah, not doing that. Um, and so what she did is she hid his clothing so that he would not leave the house because Origen was also a very modest person and he did not um, like the idea of going out in public naked, which, I mean, that's reasonable. <laughs> and so that actually deterred him from getting martyred. Um, and so instead, he, devo he devotes himself to scholarship um, and to teaching. And so to support his family, he opens a grammar school. And so he teaches uh, students about the fundamentals and the rudiments of grammar and language, uh, reason and logic. Um, as time goes on, he begins to produce these commentaries and he begins to write and kind of come up with, um, kind of extract these ideas from the Bible to help people understand exactly what it is you're reading and, to and learn how to apply faith and, I mean, excuse me, logic and reason to their faith. He was influenced by Clement, who was his teacher. 
Um, and so in a similar fashion, again, he did not feel like you had to just get rid of your intellect in order to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after, uh, during this time, he also practiced what's called an aesthetic lifestyle. So he did not own a bed, for instance. He did not own shoes. He fasted twice a day. He only, he drank no wine and he barely ate. And um, he allegedly castrated himself for the faith so that he could be um, complete chaste and completely devoted to teaching and not um, kind of pressured, I guess, <laughs> without, he didn't face it, he didn't want to face a temptation while teaching his students, both men and women, um, he didn't want to face sexual temptation. So allegedly, and I emphasize allegedly, he took care of that himself, nip nip. So, um, he completed several works during this time, including five books of an expansive commentary on John, eight books on a commentary on Genesis, two books on the resurrection, and probably his most notable work, which is First Principles. And this would be the first systematic exposition of Christian theology ever compiled. That means Origen is credited with laying the groundwork for concepts such as theology. That's Origen. Uh, the existence of a heavenly world, Origen. Uh, understanding the oneness of God, origin, the relationship between members of the Trinity, like I mentioned before, the incarnation of Jesus as the Logos, as the Word, origin, the soul, free will, and so much more. And so I want to be clear when I say this, this does not mean that origin came up with these ideas or concepts himself. These are absolutely biblical ideas. They are present and evident in Scripture. But again, remember, this is a time where the church is still very young in its theology, very young in its doctrine and understanding. What do these texts actually mean and what are the implications for our learning? And so Origen is the one who compiled essentially the first synthesis of all these ideas and released them for, quote unquote, the masses. And so eventually in 216 AD, Origen flees Egypt to Caesarea in Israel to escape the persecution and ferocity of a Roman emperor. During this time, he becomes what's called a, what was called a presbyter, uh, which is basically a minister. And he becomes somewhat of an expert witness. He is called upon to testify at the trials of heretics because, again, heresy was all over the place because people had different ideas and they're like Gnosticism, for instance, or the Arian heresy, for instance. And so you can think of Origen as being kind of like the expert forensic detective at a criminal trial, right? The person who is the expert witness who can talk about these concepts. And so Origen is the person who would speak on behalf of orthodoxy. Um, during this time though, even though he had done so many amazing, incredible formative things for the faith and for theology, that does not mean that Origen was without controversy. There were people who hated him. <laughs> there were people who uh, questioned his teachings. There were people who accused him of intermingling paganism with the gospel. Uh, there were people who said he denied the existence of hell. There were people who said he took out or he over-spiritualized the idea of the resurrection of the body. So kind of getting a little too close to Gnosticism and this idea of Jesus as a phantom. And so they're like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable. We believe in a bodily resurrection. And so some people are saying Origen was not about that. He was more about objective theorism. As we see, as we talk about all these church fathers, you're going to find that there are some things that maybe we don't necessarily hold to be true today, but it doesn't diminish the impact and the contributions uh, that these people made on the formation of theology as we know it. 
Um, and so in examining, okay, in examining some of his, sorry, <laughs> I was getting a phone call. Uh, some of these teachings, um, some of these conclusions may be valid, but Origen still was so accomplished and still so notable that he actually earned a lot of defenders of his teachings, including people who, like, defenders during his lifetime, but also people who defended his teachings and works years after his death, um, including Jerome, who was responsible for translating the Bible into the Latin Vulgate. And so, although, again, Origen's works can be contested, they have enduring quality. First Principles is still a very important theological uh, tome for those who are studying theology. It's still, again, it's kind of giving us a little bit of a prescription or a little bit of a framework or for understanding how to systematically and logically approach our faith and how to think of these really lofty concepts. The Trinity is a really lofty concept. And so we have Origen and people like him to thank again for helping us understand this in a way that, oh, this actually makes logical sense. We can apply reason and logic to understanding how God can be three in one. Three distinct persons, but all the same God. Um, and so, yeah, I think one thing worth noting is that a lot of what we know about Origen's life comes from the writings of a historian named Eusebius, who was a huge fan of Origen's. Uh, so much so <laughs> that there is some question about the validity of all of his writings simply because he was basically fanboying. Um, he was really obsessed with Origen <laughs> and loved him so much. He propped this guy on a huge pedestal. So it's important to approach Origen's life story from that particular lens. That's why I said again about the castration, allegedly. <laughs> we don't know. There's no way to really prove that. Um, but without a doubt, Origen was a devout believer. He was someone who just contributed a lot um, to the formation of theology. He is considered, I guess you could say, the earthly, I won't say he's not the spiritual father of theology, that would be God himself, um, but an earthly father of early theology. And so his works remain so formative and so critical to our understanding of who God is and how we approach the scriptures. Any questions or comments, sir? If not, we'll go on. Go for it. <clears throat> well, I am going to talk about Cyprian. Uh, Cyprian, his name is actually Vascus Sicilius Cypri, Cypriacnus, something like that, if you pronounce that. <laughs> Cyprian was converted uh, to Christianity at the age of 45. So he's lived a life. Uh, before he becomes a Christian. He's a lawyer in Carthage. Carthage is an ancient city of Tunisia, again, North Africa, but also part of, I think, the Roman Empire at that time. All right? So, you know, Carthage is a very important city. All right? It, be, it almost rivals Rome in authority and the establishment of, of, of the Christian faith. Now, you know, when you, th when you think about this and you think about Rome, most of us think about Roman Catholic. But again, as, as you all have said, this is actually before the foundation of the, the established Roman Catholic Church. But the word Catholic does not actually, at first, refer to a specific denomination. Catholic actually means universal. So a lot of these people are writing and they're dealing with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the universal church. Okay, but with, with Cyprian, 
there are some distinctions that are made. And it's really interesting. As, I'm, if, as I was reading all of this information about Cyprian, of course, you know, I'm thinking about the church that I know, the Reformation, uh, you know, the Protestant church and, and what have you, and some of the things that, that I've taught myself, I've heard people teach that actually have gone, go back to uh, Catholic beliefs. And hopefully I'll touch on a, on a couple of those things. But uh, Cyprian was born in, in Carthage. He's of Berber descent. The Berbers were, they predate the Arabs in North Africa. Now, of course, if you know Arab people, Arab people are basically light-skinned people. Berbers were, were black Africans. So, so every picture I saw, most pictures I saw of, uh, of Cyprian, he was a dark-skinned man, of course. We're not really sure, but that was one picture that I, that I came across that, that talked about, uh, I think, being painted early on, dark-skinned man. Uh, Berber descent, came from a fairly wealthy family. Right? So he was not poor. Uh, his parents were pagan, but they had money. So he went to school. Now, when you think about this, think about this. These are educated people. Now, when you look at, and I hope I'm saying this correctly because I've been reading a lot between preparing my message and talking about Antioch and then looking up Carthage, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure about this because Tunisia uh, and Phoenicia and the phonetic uh, alphabets and what have you, uh, I think they kind of go hand in hand because Phoenicians, from what I was reading today, help correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 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 when you deal with Carthage and where it was in Tunisia, it has something to do with Phoenicians. And so, anyway. Anyway, that's beside the point. All right. that, that's beside the point. I didn't really look that up, but it just struck me when I saw Phoenicia and thinking about, um, you know, the, the original alphabets and whatever. Of course, and we're dealing with, with where civilization, the area where civilization is founded in. So for anyone to say that anything that came out of Africa was not valuable, was not intellectual, well, that's... That's just a flat-out lie. These were educated people, educated men who influenced the faith, who established foundational theological principles. Now, uh, piggybacking on what you were saying, Jonathan, one of the things that I read was that, you know, you have in, in, in this time, so backing up a little bit, um, Cyprian basically, he was converted at 45, age 45, Two years later, he becomes the overseer of the church in Carthage. So he's not really, really, really rooted in, in theology and the faith. He's a lawyer. He, he, is, he is a, uh, he's skilled in rhetoric. He's, he's considered to be, uh, let's see what I read here, um, he's skillful, his skillful Latin rhetoric led to him being considered the preeminent Latin writer of Western Christianity until Jerome and Augustine. Augustine is 100 years later. Yeah, so the man was smart. The man was very, very intellectual. But one of the things that, that, that one writer talked about was his contribution of the understanding of grace uh, to Christianity because he talks about in one of his own confessions 
how his life was before he came to meet Christ, before he was led to Christ, uh, and how he was caught up in all of these different vices, but the grace of God reached him, the Holy Spirit uh, reached him and, and led him out of this. So he talks about the grace of God upon his own life. And so grace, uh, understanding you know, being a sinner, being outside of Christ, and it's the grace of God that reaches you and draws you into Christ. It's one of the contributions that he made. So, but yet, he's converted two years later because of his influence in the community. People love this man. He's a rich man, but he has a heart for the people. One account says that he sold his property and he gave the proceeds to the poor in Carthage which endeared him to the people. Uh, another account said that his friends were so, so touched by what he did that they bought the property back, bought his home back, and gave it to him. I mean, it must have been a very fabulous home, so he lived in this house. Okay. But they bought it and they gave it back to him. So he's endeared to the people, and they want him to be their leader. They want him to be the overseer of the church there in Carthage. Now, remember, remember that... Uh, up until the end of the second century, going into the third century, there's not, there's not an organized church structure. You have all of these churches in different places, house churches or what have you, and they are basically going with the scriptures that they have. They don't have Bibles like we have today, but they have the oral tradition, and so they would, they would, they would use that to teach and to preach. When a controversy arose, they would get together in their local communities and discuss this controversy, and they, they will come up with the decision. Well, with, with um, Cyprian, he, he begins to, to deal with some of these controversies and bring together groups of people, councils, if you would, to help settle some of these arguments. But now, Cyprian is not without controversy himself. All right. Because, now remember, he's a young believer who becomes overseer of the church after two years. But you have older people who've been in the church, and they're saying, this is a novice. All right. And so, uh, Novantis and uh, another man, Novantion, two different people, is, they're two that opposed him, and, and some of them left the church, all right, and started their own groups. Now, as, as Cyprian, Cyprian deals with this, okay, and this becomes one of his crucial writings, he talks about the unity of the church. Right? Remember, this is like near the beginning of, the, of Catholicism as an organized religion, an organized denomination. So what, what Cyprian does actually adds more to Catholicism, as he writes about the unity of the church, uh, in one aspect than he, than he does about the general church as well. But it, it speaks to the general church. So what, what, as he deals with these people who've left the church, he talks about the authority of the church, okay, over the life of the believer, and salvation coming through the church, baptism being given through the church, only those authorized by the church. And the church, he says, of Jesus Christ has patron 
authority, basically. Meaning that, how do you pronounce it? Patron, okay. Meaning that he takes the scripture where Jesus is talking to Peter uh, and he uh, talking to his disciples and Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And of course, we know the answer. Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I said to you, did you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, Cyprian takes the stance, which is pure Catholic theology, that the church is built on Peter. All right? And so there's one man who has the authority, and that's Peter, and after Peter, the authority goes to the Pope. So the Pope has the authority. Along with this comes uh, moving away from kind of like a, what we may call a council of, El- council of elders approach to ruling the church to a one-man authority over the church. All of this comes out of Cyprian's teaching and Cyprian's defense of the faith, but it moves more into Catholic theology than it does in the Protestant, Protestantism, which is why I pointed that out earlier. When you hear these things, you're thinking, you know, that's not what we believe. Of course not. This is before Martin Luther. This is before uh, uh, this, this challenge of the Catholic Church, but it is establishing foundation. Whether we think it's right or not, it's establishing foundation. But uh, Cyprian did some other very important things because during his time as Bishop of Carthage, and, and also let me say this, his, his, um, from, from the time he was converted to the time of his death is, I think, 12 years. So he only, he only uh, leaves the church for 10 years, a period of 10 years. Uh, during this 10 years, there, there, persecution arises. During the first persecution, Cyprian goes into hiding. And of course, his detractors say, you know, hey, you ran. You don't have the right to be leading the church. So, you know. <laughs> but his defense was, Jesus says that when persecution comes, you can, you can basically... Uh, going to hide it. I had to read that scripture uh, a couple of times, but uh, there's, there's one scripture. What, what is it? Yes. Yeah, flee to the next city. That's what Jesus said. All right. Now, Cyprian's defense was while he was uh, in hiding, he was still writing to the believers, he was still encouraging the saints to be faithful. But persecution ends. He wasn't the only one who ran. A lot of people ran. The the controversy of the, I said it earlier, lapses. (laughs) Those those who lapsed, those whose faith lapsed under under persecution. When it was over, they wanted to be readmitted to the church. Well, a lot of things happened because there were, there were those who remained faithful and they were really venerated by, church, by the churches and they were held in high esteem. And so some of them were writing uh, uh, certificates, giving people certificates saying, okay, so you, you did 
did not of faith, but, but um, you can come back into the church now. Cyprian gave a more uh, 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 critical, uh, what word did you do? Structured, gave a more structured uh, direction to this, okay? Because he stated that if they showed signs of repentance, they could be accepted back into the church, okay? Of course, I'm sure he was probably thinking about himself too. <laughs> because some people said he lapsed, all right? His face lapped under persecution. But he did. He kept writing to the church, encouraging the believers to remain faithful uh, under, under the persecution. And of course, during this time, different Roman emperors arose and they, they used this Christians as scapegoats to blame them for what was happening in the Roman Empire. So another plague arises. And I think this was called the plague of, of, of Cyprian because of the way he describes it. But it's it was really, really bad in Carthage and people were dying. Reminds me of COVID. It reminds me of Ebola. People were dying. And, in, and to describe this thing you know, people were dying in the streets. People were leaving their dead in the streets for the rats and, and the birds and what have you to eat the flesh of the dead. There was a smell of dead bodies around the city. I can remember going to Haiti after the earthquake uh, and just the stench of, of, of dead bodies just all over the city. So I can imagine what that, that was like. Cyprian encouraged the believers in the midst of this plague, to be different. He encouraged the believers to care for the dead, to care for the sick, to bury the dead. He wrote to them, and I'm, I'm going to share with you just a little bit about what Cyprian wrote, and then I'm going to, we can go on. Um, Cyprian called Christians together. He described the symptoms of the plague and told them that they must expect no divine immunity from it. He strengthened their resolve to trust God in the midst of the storm and reassured them that those who perished were not lost, but rather set free from the hard shackles of human bondage. And it goes on. I won't read all of this, but it describes this. So he encouraged the believers. So during this plague, the church arose, the church ministered, the church um, took care of the sick. Many of them probably died as well, but the church stood firm in this persecution. Yeah, which is a very great contribution of some of the things that he's mentioned uh, and remembered for. I think I mentioned the unity of the church, um, but he's, he's remembered for that. The other side of that that don't, doesn't just deal with the Catholic Church, but it, it, when you begin to understand the unity of the church, this is what Christ taught us, that we're to be one, that we're to be one. He and, and Paul talks about us maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So even though Cyprian's teaching in one way um, dealt with the Catholic Church, in another way it spoke to the church in general, that God wants us to be one. This is just a little bit about Cyprian and the kiss contributions to Christianity. That's really good. I, there's so much packed in that. <laughs> um, 
like so many parallels to the challenges that we face in the body today. Yes. And I think it's a really good illustration that there is nothing new under the sun. Unity right. has always been a challenge for the body. Yeah. You know, yeah. we hear people talk about the church needs to be more united and it becomes a lamentation of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's true. Yes, because oneness is the goal. But it's always been jacked up. Yes. <laughs> yes. We've always been kind of fractured and segmented. And I think Cyprian's story illustrates that. And I also really liked um, what you mentioned about people who felt like there would be some kind of divine immunity mm. for them for the plagues. I think we see that maybe in more of a political realm nowadays, <laughs> whereas Christians in name, you know, that becomes a little bit of a political moniker. And so we are better or we are you know, meant to reap the benefits of tax breaks or mm. the other things um, because this is God's country, you know? Mm. And so mm. I just find a lot of parallels in that. And I think that's fascinating. So thank you for bringing yeah. that. And thank you for bringing that out because it's so critical that we get that, you know, we should not expect divine immunity. We will suffer. All, all who believe in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Jesus told us that, but today it seems like people are saying, if you have faith in God, you're not supposed to suffer. You can have faith in God, you can rebuke the plague, and, and COVID is not going to touch you. You don't need to wear a mask because you got faith in God. And, and you mentioned earlier about some people not wanting others to be admitted back into the church after COVID because they denied the faith. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. We, because of our ignorance of history, we think that what happens in the 21st century has never happened before, but there's nothing new under the sun. Amen. Um, I'm going I'm, I'm to piggyback off of that just a little bit. What I want to say, too, is a lot of times when the persecution began in the church, it was because the Christians refused to worship the Roman gods. And whenever things would happen, like plagues or whatever, they would say it's because of those Christians. And they would stop persecuting the Christians. Another thing I wanted to say, too, the gospel was given to the Jews, you know. It came through the Jews. But it was the church fathers who helped explain it. Right? So we can't overlook the church fathers because they helped explain it. So who I'm going to talk about today, I'm talking about the uh, pneumatology of the Cappadocian fathers in the creed of Constantinople, which is modern-day Turkey, okay? I'm going to talk about these Cappadocian fathers. If you don't know about them, you would know today, go, you know, just don't Google it. Get you some books and, you know, and, and read. But listen, they, the, uh, the uh, uh, Cappadocian fathers consisted of Basil the Great, Gregory of Nassa, and Gregory of, of uh, Nassiasis. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, they were uh, instrumental in shaping early Christian theology and spirituality. Their, their uh, um, uh, contribution um, to the understanding of the Trinity, the uh, divinity of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's very important, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, because a lot of us, we, a lot of times, uh, well, back then, they didn't know how the Holy Spirit tied in, right? Okay, and then also Christology. Uh, you know, and their teaching his, uh, of this has left an uh, uh, indelible mark on Christian doctrine. We observe this today. Their writings and insight continue to inspire and guide Christians uh, in their pursuit of spiritual growth in the, in the defense 
of Orthodox, you talked about that earlier, uh, Orthodox Christians, which is, you know, according to the truth, according to the structure that was given to us in Scripture, right? Uh, and then it also goes on to say uh, that the um, Cappadocian fathers serve as an uh, enduring example of intellectual rigor. You were just talking about that. You know, I, I, when I was studying in, in, in seminary, I remember they were talking about people saying, leave your mind at the door. You know, or, you know, no which, which doesn't make sense. When the Bible says we should love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, you know, right. and all of our strength. So you don't leave your mind at the door, right? right. You educate your mind. Right. All right? And so, uh, so they were humble. They were deep. Um, they were deep uh, spiritually for contemporary Christians. They played a critical role in developing the orthodox understanding and language used to articulate the Trinity, pr providing a theological framework that would be accepted by the church. Okay, listen to this. The gospel was given, but we didn't understand it. Okay, I'm talking, when I say we, I'm talking about even back then. It had to be explained. And these church fathers, although they weren't, uh, uh, they were not Hebrews per se, but they have explained what was given to Paul, what was given to Peter. They helped explain it, right? Uh, you know, Paul writers were pretty difficult to understand, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you read, you, and, and, and not only Paul, but Luke, okay? So, so listen. There was confusion because of the interpretation or misinterpretation of important terms such as uzia, okay, which is the substance and essence in hypostatic and propropon. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, Latin pro for persona. We're going to talk about it in just a little bit. The use of such concepts became clear through the works of these three great Cappadocian fathers, Basil of, of uh, Caesarea, Gregory of, of uh, Nasiasus, and Greg, Gregory of Nasa. It was the Cappadocian fathers who defined the Holy Spirit as understood today in Christian doctrines. Listen to that. As understood today in Christian doctrines, the Cappadocian fathers laid the groundwork for Trinitarian theology, uh, uh, ultimately shaping and understanding of God. Their influence on Christology and pneumatology cannot be properly expressed by words. Their struggle ultimately opened the eyes of all Christians to the wonders and the beauties of the Holy Spirit. Right? The struggles, because the Holy Spirit is the one that was actually not given his just due. Because they didn't see him as being God. Right? But when you read Luke, you, have, you can't come away from there without understanding he is God, right? right. Now, uh, you know, they, uh, this beauty lies within its gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is the Father and Jesus is the giver, making the Holy Spirit the gift. We, uh, uh, we obtain our, uh, our um, uh, we obtain, let me slow up, we obtain our existence from God and participate in this grace through Jesus by the means of the Spirit who makes us holy. 
The Holy Spirit makes us holy. Amen. Okay, listen, the gift of the Spirit is ultimately the condition in which we may experience the Word who himself is the image of the Father. Now listen, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, the main contribution that he made, he argued for the gradual revelation in history of the full nature of the Godhead. The gradual revelation. He was saying that they didn't understand it in the Old Testament. It was hid in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament. So he argued for that fact. It was only in time of the church that the deity of the Holy Spirit became known. Right? People, well, you don't see that in the Old Testament. Come on. Basil the Great affirmed the deity of the Holy Spirit by the attributes described of him in Scripture as wholly identical to that of the Father. Remember what Peter told, uh, 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 um, what, what was their name? The ones that lied. Uh, 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 yeah, and that's about, you have not lied to men, but you lied to the Holy Ghost. He said one time, and next time he said, you lied unto God. Right? Uh, so he was saying that, that, that the Holy Spirit was God. He was the younger brother of uh, Gregory of, uh, of, of uh, Nazia, and their, and their mutual friend was Gregory of Nazianzus. Now, Basil produced a polemic against uh, symbolism, uh, which was a heresy also known as modalism. Okay? Uh, that uh, a heresy stated that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different modes or aspects of one God. We have a faith today that, that ascribed to that belief. Jesus only. Right? They believe that it's God who manifested himself in the Old Testament as God the Father, right? And then in the in, in New Testament, he manifested himself as Jesus the Son. And then uh, once Jesus left, he, manifest, he manifested himself as, uh, as God the Holy Spirit. So they're saying it's one person who manifests himself in three manifestations, three modes, right? And so he argued against that. So that, you know, like you said, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, it's nothing new in the sun. Uh, he, he, he argued that, and uh, um, Basil uh, established technical terms for the Trinity that could, not, uh, that could best be expressed in biblical data. They used the scriptures to form their apology. They did not take their apology to try to force the scriptures into the apology, Right? Basil, okay, so he said the, the term itself had already been established by the Nicene uh, fathers in 325 AD. But the, um, these rebellions uh, uh, confused it by equating hypostatic will osia, right? Being substance, nature, and essence. Basil's greatest contribution is that he distinguished clearly between the hypostatic and the usia, right? Basil allowed the truth of Scripture to shape our language instead of letting the language shape Scripture, right? This is one of the reasons why he deserves the title Gregory the Great. Listen, this is why I say, go and study these guys, right? 
Uh, they gave us a lot of what we know about the Holy Spirit. They gave us a lot of what we know about the Trinity today. They actually said that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy, Holy Spirit had loved on each other throughout eternity. We, you know, erasing the thing that God created us because he needed us. He don't need nothing, right? Uh, God didn't need uh, uh, anyone to love because <laughs> he loved. They loved on each other, Okay. Okay, now, the last one, Gregory of, of uh, Nasia. He was the youngest of the uh, Cappadocian uh, Trinity, uh, a triad, and he showed the most interest in uh, uh, origins of biblical theory, he was talking about, uh, the influences of Gregory, uh, whom he always admired, uh, you know, uh, the, the other Gregory. Uh, he admired him greatly because of his, of his historical brilliance. They're again, talking about Educating yourself. In his own brother Basil, who work he, he explicitly continued after his brother's premature death. In addition to uh, be built upon his brother's works, Gregory wrote together, wove together both the literal and the spiritual sense of sacred scripture to express a pastoral and theological approach to life known as, and I'm not going to, it's E-P-E-K-T-S-I-S, okay? Okay, now, because I would mess it up. Uh, <laughs> and it's a term derived from the Greek word found in, what is it? There you go, that's it right there, okay? <laughs> it was a word found in verses, uh, that's in Philippians 3.13, now listen to this right here where it is translated as stretching out, a term borrowed from athletics. It implies something that is becoming, developing, and being strived for. It has alternatively uh, been understood as evolving and growing. As it pertains to Christian theology, it applies to the true joy in Christian living, found in the process of spiritual growth and development. That is, um, it is the, uh, the uh, internal change we experience that produces a sense of happiness. Let me say that again. It is the change that we experience uh, uh, that produces a sense of happiness. So if you're stagnant, you're not going to be too happy. Um, and say it's not to achieve any particular goal. Specifically, he emphasized the need for continual spiritual transformation and suggest this process will continue forever, even in eternity. Think about it. It's a God who is infinite. How are we going to know them all? When we get to heaven, we know everything. Don't happen. All right? <laughs> Ooh, for Gregory, I'm almost done. For Gregory, uh, it is being continually drawn by the Holy Spirit to live the life of Jesus Christ culminating in eternal life with God the Father, in essence, he places the importance on the journey of the Christian growth in Christ. He's, Amen. He's, it's, it's, he emphasized on the experience of growing in Christ. And that's very important for us today because uh, uh, the Holy Spirit helps us in this area Amen. of growing, and we have to uh, yield ourselves. To the Holy Spirit. Thank God for these capitals and fathers. Amen. Amen. I just, 
I want to comment on something that you said just at the end about growing in Christ. Um, and in us growing in Christ, you know, we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is, and we have to study. Yeah. Right? I think a lot of times, you know, um, when people become intimidated by theological concepts, instead of moving towards it and learning more and digging deep, they move away from it. And mm -hmm. so that really, you know, spoke to more of the, you know, those Orthodox believers uh, in the, in the um, early church who um, were afraid of intellectualism. But I remember having a conversation with someone, a family member, several months ago, and she was struggling with her faith. And what she said was that when she would talk to people, her family members, people that she knew who were believers, they couldn't really defend the faith. Mm. They could tell you, I, I know Jesus is real, mm. and I believe yeah. in Jesus. But moving beyond that to really um, really understanding their faith um, and, and being able to, to, to help her in that journey that she was in of struggling, yeah. she wasn't getting that. Um, and so, you know, I just want to encourage those of you who are watching, um, you are a theologian. If you are a believer, you are a theologian. You know about God. And so continue to grow and learn about God as you grow in your faith. You are a theologian. To, to piggyback off that real quick, um, especially dealing with the fact that the person that I'm about to talk about is a shining example of that, that um, the journey is not over. Yeah. You know, so so that um, and, and also, you know, sometimes I think that uh, that Christians have unfair expectations of other Christians and mm. also other people. Yeah. Um, so we will look at a person that may have started out wrong in our particular context and say, oh, you know what? That person ain't never going to be nothing, you know, and sometimes people write people off before this story is over. Yeah. You know, and um, and doing that, we we then alienate ourselves. So we don't understand. We alienate our actual selves mm -hmm. by doing that because we're saying we have no hope or faith in the plan of God and people, uh, which is not Christian because God so loved the world. Right. So, so to, to immediately say that this person is without cause to hear the faith is to deny what Christ did for that one person and also for you and for everybody else. So it's very important that we latch on to that and see that in our own lives, we're, we're counting somebody out, we have to repent. Because, yeah. because if you're saying to yourself, this person will never make it, you've taken the side of Satan. Yeah. You, you've now become Satan's child because this is not Christ speaking. You know, um, this is a, like he gives, he's, it's hope, yeah. right? So on that, Augustine of Hippo is who I have. Um, Augustine was a very interesting guy because he, um, he's at, um, he, was a, he was born of Patricius who is a, Roman uh, official who was a pagan, and his mother was a Christian, Berber, um, you know, um, born in um, Tagasti, which is modern-day um, Algeria, which is North Africa, right? So he was naturally gifted in multiple things as a child. They knew it. They knew it all. When he was a child, they said, we got to get him into a school. So they put him into school, and he excelled in school, but they ran out of funds. So another person actually got him and sponsored him or patronized him. That, that's a, they, they patroned him to go to Carthage um, where he would continue his education. And like Bishop was just saying, Carthage is a place of economic power, not just for the church, but for the Roman Empire. Economic power, there is um, lots of money coming into Carthage because it is a port place. Right? It's right beside the water. So he goes there. He does his study and his research in um, Carthage to become a uh, rhetoric 
or a person who studies how to do discourse, um, how well to speak, not particularly dealing with no truth, but, <laughs> but I just want to be able to sound, we, we heard that before, I just want to sound like, you know what I'm saying, I, I know what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so that's literally, I didn't, I mean, I was flabbergasted that, that was a career. That was a career in Roman society is to just sound like you know what you're talking about, but the truth part ain't got nothing to do with it. Just make them, make them believe, you know what I'm saying? So, so he was in a school, <laughs> yeah, he was in a school of rhetoric and he, he was a fantastic um, at rhetorical speech and, and debate and things of that nature. Um, at 17, he was already teaching. You know, um, he was born in 354, by the way. Um, so he, by 17, he had a, a whole situation. He had a, a concubine and a child at 17. You know what I'm saying? So I mean, that's what I like, like at 17, he already had a whole kid um, and a concubine. You know, nothing new. All right. So, so, so he, yeah, so he like is going forward. You know, his father passed, so his mother now stays. And she's Christian. She's, of course, adamantly against his lifestyle, but she still loves him. So she continues to encourage him to go for the faith. Every single step of the way, she's telling him to go for the faith. But his issue with his mama was that she could not defend it. She couldn't defend the faith. She wasn't as intellectually robust mm -hmm. as other people that were the, um, the, the, the neoplatism that, that, that we'll get into later with mm -hmm. him as well. And then also the attractiveness of a new movement called Manichaeism or Manichaeism, mm -hmm. right? So he um, becomes a Manichae or Manichae. Um, after he hears them, because he considers them a particular school of thought. Now, um, I'll be brief in this. Manichaeism, uh, at its root, just believes that good and evil are of substance or of matter. So something it can be quantified as good and something can be quantified as evil. So, for example, a person that was a Manichae believed that killing the animal was wrong. Okay, I just want you to hear how dumb this is, okay? Um, they believe that killing the animal is wrong, okay? Um, but also, they have to eat plants because plants, um, they can't kill, but then they're like, oh, you do kill plants because you have to pluck them off of, of, of a tree to kill the plant. So, so what they would do, they would have multiple people under them, and they say, all right, look, man, I need you to pluck mine because I didn't kill it. Oh, my. I didn't kill it. So, oh so I didn't kill it, so I ain't wrong. I'm going to ingest this in good, and then my body is going to internalize what's good, give me all the good stuff, wow. and then I will, I will excrete the bad. But you put it that on was, the that, that, Yeah, you put it on the other person, though, you know? Wow. So, so, so it, it seemed logical when, when um, Augustine had first started, but once again, he started studying some more. It's like one of the reasons, one of the themes I've heard from everybody is that we should all study, right? Um, before, Augustine was not interested in truth. And that sounds very crazy, you know, in our generation because people are obsessed with truth. Obsessed. Right. So um, but but he was very honest. He's like, I ain't got nothing to do with truth. My business is not truth. Rhetoric is for me to sound like I won. Not to say yeah, I said right. But he read um one of the famous philosophers of the Grecian world, Cicero. And Cicero uh, writing was he talked about how all things should always lead back to the truth. Unfortunately, that book is lost. So only there's only like two or three people in history that actually talked about this book. Um, Augustine is actually one of them, which is crazy that he's a Christian that reference a book that other philosophers and stuff have referenced as well, but nobody, there's not been a copy found of it. Um, but when he saw that, he was like, so that means I need to pursue truth. So he turned his whole ambition to getting truth. So he then looked at Manichaeism and he was like, I don't make no sense. 
So, so my two root issues is the problem of evil, which is what, this is what, what made him, he had issues with his mom. Problem of evil and how, how disgusting the Old Testament is to him. He hated the Old Testament. He was like, this is disgusting literature, rape and incest and murder. And he said, I don't, no, why would I want to read this? This is, this is despicable. So he refused to acknowledge it as a form of, of authentic writing. Excuse me, he also said, there's no way that this, this Christianity thing that you follow can tell me why God ain't evil. He said, he said, there's no way you can show it to me. So he had that issue in him when he, um, when he went to the head um, teachers of the Manichae or Manichaeism, and they couldn't refute it. He, he was like, so y'all don't got an answer either. And they're like, no, we ain't got nothing. You know, we, we're just saying, I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer to that. He was like, okay, y'all try it. So, so he, he, he then, um, he, he, so it's interesting, like, at least the reason that I'm, I'm vibing with him is that he's not even 30 yet. Um, He's, he's excelled at, at multiple things, multiple benches, a very intellectual gentleman. He um, gets to a place where he's a teacher in, um, in Carthage. He hates it. Um, he absolutely hates it. He actually hates it so bad because the kids are so unruly. I can relate. Um, and, then, and then, I said, the Holy Spirit, you did this because I, you got a sense of humor. Um, you know what I'm saying? So the kids were unruly in Carthage. He said, right, I'm getting out of Carthage. So he, he left Carthage and went to Rome and come to find out they didn't know how to pay him in Rome. So he had students that wouldn't pay in Rome. So he left Carthage, went to Rome, left Rome, and then went to Milan. When he got to Milan, he met his mother once again. It's the beauty of a praying mother. You know what I'm saying? It's the beauty of this. Like she didn't know everything, but she was just adamantly trying to, trying to get it. I got to get him before folk that can get him into the faith. And um, she said, you need to go in here, um, here Bishop Ambrose preach, who was in Milan. And um, he was a phenomenal rhetoric preacher, but he was also one who was very obsessed with truth and dealing with, and he, was a, he also was a, was a great apolog, apologist. So he went and sat under him and listened, and he was, oh my goodness. All his issues with, uh, with, the, um, with the issue of, uh, or the origin of evil um, was solved. His issue with the Old Testament was also solved. Just by listening to one or two sermons from Ambrose, he was converted, baptized, him and his son were baptized in Milan. Um, he continued to do ministry, but what um, a tragedies happened. It was like right after he got saved and he's heading back home to, to Gosti, his mother dies on a port. He gets back to the God to Gosti, his son dies. He lost his mother and his son in the course of almost like a year um, of him coming to the faith. But this forced him to really go into more of a, a, a settled lifestyle where he just began to write and send things out. Once again, reputations, polemics, um, you know, because he was a very logical man. His fame blew up and uh, that people were like, we need, to, we need to find this boy, Augustine, where, where, where he's at. Um, he went to go visit Hippo. This is the fun part um, because it kind of, kind of ties to what happened with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with Cyprian. He, he goes to visit Hippo. He goes to a church, the pastor, um, Valerius, I believe is his name. Um, Valerius uh, prays out loud in front of people. We need another pastor. Um, and I pray y'all all get the vision, if you feel me. And, and, and they all looked at, uh, at Augustine and their life seized him. They grabbed him and his visit became an ordination. He was ordained pastor in Hippo. Two years, four years later, he was made bishop of Hippo. He served along with Valerius, who was also a bishop. So in that time, that he um, came to this course, he it was not against this, he didn't want to do this, but he, he understood why. 
So he devoted most of his energies into refuting things that he saw was making the people stray away. Three main things um, that, he, that he delved on. One was the one he came from, which was Manichaeism. The other is the Donatists. The Donatists believe that um, if you denied the faith, kind of the same situation with, with, with Cyprian, um, if you denied the faith and you came back, everything that you've done is disqualified. That means if you baptize people, they need to be rebaptized. If you preach, all your sermons are invalid. If, if, you, if you stood before people and did the Eucharist, that is also invalid. All this stuff is invalid. You are, you are fully disqualified from ever having discourse. You need to come on back, and when you come back, everything you did prior was trash, right? <laughs> so, so the Donatists were hardcore, okay? So he had to come in and refute and say, it has nothing to do with the power of the person. It's everything to do with the God who, who, who works through the person. Yes, so that way, none of the messages were disqualified. The baptisms weren't disqualified, things of that nature, right? So he, he spoke to that. Then after him, Pelagius um, popped up, who was a Briton. This is what's fun, fun about this. You know, it's like, once again, this is an African I'm talking about right now, right? Pelagius was a Briton, okay? He came into the faith, and he started twisting and mingling it with their pagan beliefs, which is that they believe, or Pelagian believe, that if you were, when you were born, you were born with the full power and authority to not sin or to sin. Um, he believed that in the origin of uh, Adam and Eve, even though they did sin, they had the capacity to not sin. They chose to sin, and that every person is not affected by the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve. He believed that um, it was very, it was very, very, like very sneaky, right? So he like, this is what we're gonna deal with. This is how we we don't believe. I believe that you can overcome your own sin. You think we, we ain't heard that, right? We heard that. Oh, you 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 got the power of self. To overcome all things. That's very pervasive in 2023. And um, this is where we get the doctrine of original sin. This is Augustine. Augustine said, okay, that's cool, but we have free will. Absolutely. It can be influenced by nature. Absolutely. But we have a choice. But to say that we are the persons who can get rid of our own sin is heresy. Because it can turn you and it can get in front of your will. That was, his, that was his argument, that sin gets in front of our will and stops us from being in free will or true freedom. Mm. So he then preached, of course, which we all understand now, which is that Christ alone is the answer to sin. Not our own logic, not our own abilities, not the power and knowledge of self. Christ alone is the only one that can actually free us from sin and make us free. As he said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You know, so Augustine also was very well known for two works, um, most more than that, but two particular works. Um, Confessions, which was his autobiography coming to, about his pilgrimage to come into the faith. The second was the city of God. Um, Confessions is dope. I mean, like, it, it, it's, it's a one and done. Nobody else has ever written anything like it. I, I would encourage every Christian to pick it up. It's like nine books. It's not really long, though. Books back then were like five pages. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, like, 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 read it because he tells you his, his journey into the faith and the different questions he had. I mean, he had one prayer that I was, I vibe with it. I was like, man, I swear, um, there's probably a bunch of people that will hear this that will understand it, and it don't sound spiritual, but it was real. He said, "Lord, make me chase, but not too soon." <laughs> look here, look here. That's real. Look, 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 look here, look here, look here. I, 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 I read that, I read that, and I had to walk away. I said, my God. I, I, I said, bro, bro, Ham just, 
He, he, he got all up in my soul. Because, because, because like, it, it, it was because he was very honest about the fact that he understood what it means to be a Christian. Right. He said, if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to let all this stuff go. Yeah. And he was like, I'm not ready to let go of this bad boy yet. So I want to enjoy a little bit more. So, you know, make me chase, Lord, but not too soon. Not too soon. Just, just so now those prayers, of course, changed. He got older in the faith, but um, <laughs> you know what I'm <laughs> but but yeah, like just but that was, I thought it was very real that he was able to to say that and and still be counted among the faithful. Um, but yeah, like he he the city of God. He wrote about the the love of God and the love of self, which is interesting. Once again, talking about the love of self, and he compared the two cities. The first city, of course, the city of God, and the second was actually Rome. And when he dealt with that, he said that the love of self will crumble. But these two are always fighting each other. But the one thing that will always stand is the love of God. The love of God is a city that will never be destroyed. You know, so that was his, that was his reputation for a lot of the works that you were talking about, which is the, well, I think multiple people talk about this, where um, the Romans believed that it was the Christian's fault that the cities crumbled because they were not pagan, right? So that was his reputation, like, no, God used y'all because y'all were needed. You refused to believe you're no longer needed. So your city will crumble, but guess what city is going to always stand? The city of God. So, so he did that, um, like I said, and I always think it's very interesting for his journey is that he, he's quoted by Martin Luther. Most Greek Orthodox churches quote Augustine. Catholics quote Augustine. They call him the father of the Western theology, of the Western church, um, because his, his, his net covered most of Africa and also the European world. Um, he died the day the Vandals came to destroy Hippo, which I found, I was like, that's, that's God right there. The day that the Vandals came to burn your city down, he was already gone. And what was absolutely amazing about that is fact that all his writings survived. Nobody else can really attest to that. All their writings survive. Augustine's writings survive to this day that we use to refute bad doctrine and things like that. Once again, he wasn't perfect. Like I said, he had, you know, he had stuff going on, if you feel me. You know, like he, he but, but that did not disqualify him. And I really do believe that because of his journey, he fought with the fact that, like, I'm 30 years old and I got saved. You know, that, that, was, that was his, I'm 30 years old and I got saved. You know, I can't come at you and say that the Lord don't got a plan for you. That was, that, that was devoid from his theology. He's like, no, no, grace is for me. Grace is for you. you know? So I thank God for his example and for what he contributed to the faith and what we're using you know, from his teachers and also all the other great men and women that, that have gone forward in the faith to defend it, um, adamantly, some even unto death, you know, and, and see you know, this, this great gospel continue uh, in the earth realm. So, yeah. Well, Trevor, I, want to, I have uh, two questions. One, do you think that um, uh, the, the uh, Manichaeism uh, belief, you think that you see some form of that today? Yes. Um, so so the, the, the interesting thing is we have holiness church um, situations where people quantify good as, as levels of holiness. So it's not just doctrine, it's things you do. The um, Manichae believed that if you did these particular things, the matter of the good of that will be put into you to go out and do more good. 
So in certain instances, you think about, you could think about uh, multiple people that have equated the, the works that we do as a way to salvation. So it's a refutation of salvation by works alone. But, but that's, what, that's what the Manichees believe. They believe that if I do these things in this good order, that I, I'm owed heaven. I'm owed the good. You know, so I, I, like I said, I think that that's very pervasive even right now. What's the second question? <laughs> yes. I remember I heard someone say, I might have read it, that uh, um, Augustine uh, said that they quoted him saying that darkness is deprivation of light. You say that darkness itself is not a thing. That's right. Yeah. Just like you say, evil is not a thing. thing. It's the privation yeah. of good. Yes, sir. Can you elaborate on that? So, so Augustine' um, issue of, of good and evil, once again, like for even for the, today, is the best refutation I've ever read. He said that because the Manichae believed that that evil was actually matter. It's something that exists. Something that that is in dualism with good, meaning that it's equally powerful that good and evil are equally as powerful. The, um, his, his rock was, he said, think of a rock that you throw into the water. The original cause of the rock, you can consider that God. Now the ripples that follow off of that are strong when they're closer and weaker as they go further away. He said, so our evil is a decision because we are no longer close to the will that he gave us to do good. He said, if you will to do good, you're right by the Father. Because he's able to give you the information to do it. But the further along, the further away you go from good, there's only evil. Because your, your distortion is now darkened from the light of God. So that was, that was Augustine's um, like argument against evil being something that God did. He said, no, no. It's a free choice. But you ain't close to God. And that's why evil is always present in you. So the closer you are to God, the evil that you want to choose is no, it's not as present. But the further you get away from God, then the evil is more present in your heart. Yeah. Yes, um, but this has been very rich. I was just thinking, even with relation to the to to the message today, you know, if you're just a church member and there's no relationship. You know, you can just keep going further and further, and, further. and evil just it just becomes more present in your life and stronger in your life. And then, of course, all kinds of things just begin to come up, and you begin to justify, and it's okay because everybody else is doing it. But when you're close to God, it's God who begins to work in you to create the will to do His good pleasure, and you begin to see those things that you used to do. Yeah, yeah, that's just so far away from God. Anyway, this has been very good. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we've been here for a little while. We want to wrap this up, but I, I want to throw a plug in. I mean, this is, this is rich. I want to throw a plug in for Tabernacle of Praise Church International. What you see here, we have enjoyed this. Okay? We do this regularly. 
when we have our meetings with the ministers and we have conversations about different things we've learned uh, to feed off of each other, I think about uh, Cyprian and get into the thing of the of the one pastor and the one man who kind of like runs the church and does everything and knows everything. I realized a long time ago that, you know, God has gifted us with ministers, with people who have gifts and abilities that bring uh, to the table. And I never want to be at the point where I'm the only one speaking, uh, that God is speaking to others. Uh, this, this is a very sound church, and, and we want to invite you if you're in the if you're in the area, uh, to come and visit us, you know we 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 have learned from even studying uh, these uh, church fathers and the things that they taught. We're able to see how theology has developed over the years, even as we've developed our own theology. I, of course, I'm the oldest one up here, you know. So <laughs> but I can see in my own life how my theology has developed over the years as I as I've grown in the Lord. And been able to share with with them, with with all of them and their other ministers, and with the congregation. And it's a growing process to be who God wants us to be, and to do the work that God wants us to do. So, thank you for tuning in. We pray that you have been helped by this, and encouraged, and and, and challenged in your walk with the Lord. Is there any last word from any of you all before we close? I just want to say I learned a lot today, and it makes me want to go home and. Do some more study. Yes. I, I would say, um, I, I, don't, I didn't bring it up here with me, but there's um, a couple of books. Um, one particular book that I think about um, and I use regularly is uh, by a gentleman from South America. His name is Gusto Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and he wrote The History of Christianity. And uh, it's a two-volume book where he goes from the early church to the um, Reformation, the Reformation to now. Um, and I do believe it is comprehensive. It's very good. Gusto Gonzalez, um, The History of Christianity. He also has one, The History of Christian Thought, which is also very good um, for self-study. But I'm telling you, um, there's so much that happened in the faith that, um, like, like, like Jonathan said earlier, you know, Mr. Fadden, like, there's nothing new. Um, zero things new. And when you know that, a lot of the issues that we have now have already been solved. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff, that, 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 that's one of the things I learned in study. I'm like, the reason why we don't know is because we don't read. Exactly. But, but if we read, we would know, oh, yeah, they figured that out in 300 AD. Mm -hmm. like, literally, like, oh, they figured yes. that out already. That's, that's not even a problem. But why are we fighting over this? You know, like, but, but that, if that was the case for the Christian, um, we wouldn't have the, the issues that we have right now. Because we no, 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 they already did. We got councils to show that, that the stuff was written right. But, um, but yeah, like just being persistent in learning is, is one of the things I'd encourage people to do. And I think my final word is related to that in that we should not take for granted studying. Um, and I think sometimes we may, might tend to hyper-spiritualize study. Um, we make it seem like it's something that's so lofty or that only certain people of a certain caliber, certain background, intellectual mm -hmm. gifting can actually... Uh, participate in, but it's available for us all. Um, and we also need to be careful not to hyper-spiritualize our introduction and our engagement with the text in mm -hmm. that, okay, I, the Holy Spirit will give me everything I need to know, so I don't need to crack open another book. Um, yet, the Spirit guides in all truth, absolutely. <laughs> However, 
if that were the case, then Paul wouldn't have written to Timothy, study That's to show right. thyself approved. That's right. um, this is important work, and it's accessible to everyone. You don't have to be a seminarian. Not everybody up here has gone to seminary. I did not go to seminary. Um, you just have to be available. Avail That's yourself right. to this work. Avail yourself to these resources. Avail yourself to these people mm-hmm. um, who will guide you and point you in the direction of resources that you can partake in. And just know that when we open ourselves up to this type of learning, the Holy Spirit absolutely guides us in that truth because yes. he illuminates these concepts and these ideas. And it becomes, like Bishop was saying, so much richer. The context you you gain and the understanding that you you glean is just so much richer. What we were talking about today happened prior to it getting to Germany. Yes. Okay? So don't, don't, mix them, don't mix them up. Because I know there's some problems for the bicep talk about Martin Luther. Thank God for Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. But he was over in Germany. What we're talking about happened before, before. the gospel got to Germany. That's right. Okay, and quickly, uh, on that, on that, now be quiet, okay? And this is, just, this is just because it needs to be known, and I say it all the time, but just for the public. Um, Martin Luther did not come up with that exegesis alone. No. He had to go to Africa. He had an Ethiopian cleric by the name of Michael that he consulted with that, that used to come and visit the country. And he would like, hey, I got to get this letter. I just, can you please look at this in my, in my right? I'm in a ballpark. And Michael's response is literally like, we believe this. We believe this for almost a 1,000 years. So when people say that the church started with Martin Luther, no shade, um, no, um, it didn't. Like, and then he also needed to be informed by his brothers and sisters in Africa to reinforce the push for Protestantism. So even Protestantism is owed a favor. It's, it's African. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like the doctrine is actually even given the African stamp of theology um, going forward. So just to let you know, like, like that, that's just a, a side note. You can look them up, Michael Cleric. Um, and, and look at how they, un, how they recently unlocked the letters of Martin Luther to, um, to uh, Michael the Cleric like, within the past 10 years. Um, you'll find, yeah, find out why and you'll be amazed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any last word? Yeah. Thank you so much. The last book I found on Cyprian was written by a man by the name of Robert Daniel who was in North Africa doing work missions. And what I found from him was some things that I didn't read anywhere else in all of my searching. But he was from North Africa. He wrote about Cyprian. And it's it's called The Holy Seed. The Holy Seed. And so North Africa definitely, uh, Africa has played a great role in the development of the faith that we live in today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Join us next time when we come together to talk about more fathers of the faith. God bless you.